And welcome to Hebrews 2020. This is increment 129, which follows on the heels of 128. We're recording both 128 and 129 on Good Friday, April 2nd, on 2021. But we're only allowing the first, the one, the 128 will be released for a Sunday message and 129 for the following Wednesday message. That'll give you time to kind of digest the content of 128. 129 continues what has been called a revisitation of the Israel of God. And we've just dealt with a kind of a challenge to the translation of Galatians 6.16 by Martinus C. DeBoer in his Galatians commentary. And again, this must be taken together with 128. And in fact, you can read the notes that go with it separate from the spoken message. Or you can try to follow along while the spoken message is going on if you want to. This is increment 129. And even though it's ensconced thoroughly within our Hebrews series called We See Jesus, Hebrews 2020, it is an excursus or a slight digression that's going to be, I hopeful, I, I think, hopeful, helpful to all of us in the interpretation of Hebrews and for many other reasons. So we left off last time with my response to DeBoer. And because I'm not intending to reiterate everything from 128, again, I urge you to listen to that first and then 129. And this is increment 129, and I will entitle this Revisitation of the Israel of God Insight Part 2, but it will begin with my response to DeBoer. That's D-E and then capital B-O-E-R. Father, we ask now, and I ask as a pastor who teaches, that I may be granted the grace by you today to be a helper of the listener's joy, that the joy that we derive from this message and from seeing Jesus with the eyes of our heart will be a lasting joy that will take us not only through the trials of life in the near future, but a joy that lasts until we see him face to face. We ask this in his name. Amen. My response to DeBoer, that the Israel of God was, dis- was a descriptive title assigned by the false gospel preachers in Galatia to themselves, which is DeBoer's thesis. That did not mean that the title, Israel of God, the Israel of God, was an appropriate one for them. Consequently, if Paul was indeed pronouncing a benediction of mercy on his opponents, and that's very important because I believe that he was here. This is my take also. That Paul was indeed pronouncing a benediction of mercy on his opponents. He was calling them the Israel of God ironically, while nevertheless intending to pronounce mercy on them. In fact, God will show mercy on them. And as I said last time, and will say again, he has in Jesus Christ and him crucified shown great 
mercy to them and to me and to all of us. As Paul showed in a later letter, Romans, even though Romans is first in the order of placement in the New Testament, it's later in the chronology of Paul's letters. So Paul showed in a letter later, Romans, that he explicitly declared that all Israel will be saved. And by Israel, he meant that which people refer to as national or sometimes ethnic Israel, which I think is better described as historical Israel. Contrary to the assumption of those who hold an anti-Jewish sentiment, both then and now, or who harbor either a terrible oversight of insight or even worse, Contrary to those who are infected with the terrible plague of anti-Semitism. Contrary to what you think, all Israel will be saved. That's historical Israel. That's what, you, what we would call the Jewish people over the course of all history. From their escape and exodus from Egypt onwards. All Israel will be saved. Furthermore, this will happen even as the fullness of the Gentiles enters with Israel into salvation. The word pleroma is used twice in Romans, and it's kind of a biblical math. We've done it before in our study of Romans. Pleroma. P-L-E-R-O-M-A. The pleroma of Israel, that's the fullness of all of Israel, plus the fullness or the pleroma of the Gentiles. You add that pleroma to this pleroma, and you have all humanity. And so, once again, the pleroma of Israel, which is the full number of all of Israel diachronically throughout all of time, and the pleroma of the Gentiles, that's, a, that's the totality of all non-Jews or Gentiles or what are called the nations over all the course of history. Add those two pleromas together and you have the totality of all of humanity over all of time and through all of history. Romans 11.30 to 36 also expresses that. In fact, we're going to take a look at that passage in Romans 11 in the last closing paragraphs of Romans 11 in a moment. Contrary to hellists, on the other hand, or infernalists as they're called, people who believe in an eternal hell of conscious torment in 30 million degree Fahrenheit heat, which one dispensational author estimated hell to be, contrary to these hellists and others who are in a flight from the insight of the USSJC, UICC, God has looked down or locked down, we like the word lockdown, don't we lately, God has locked down all Jews and all Gentiles in disobedience and unbelief in order to have saving mercy on all. I say saving mercy because God's mercy is saving. Titus 
3.5, Romans 11.30 to 32. So contrary to Hellists and others who are in flight from the insight of the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, God has locked down all Jews and Gentiles throughout all of history in disobedience and unbelief in order to have saving mercy on all. Consequently, it's perfectly in accord with Paul to pronounce a benediction, that's a blessing, even on his Jewish opponents in Galatia, whom he considered to be perverters of the gospel of the grace of God. Again, this is perfectly agreeable with his words in Romans 11. I take this translation from when we did Romans the Epistle, reading Romans with the light on, and we begin with Romans 11.25, and we'll go all the way through 36. My siblings, this is Paul, who had been severe up to this point, even in Romans, now became kind and tender in his appeal. He says, my siblings, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery so that you would not be sensible only in yourselves. What he means is, I don't want you to be restricted to the general bias that assumes the omnicompetence of common sense. In order that you won't be sensible only in yourselves, I want you to know that hardness has come about in part of Israel, that's historical Israel, only until... The totality, pleroma, of the Gentiles comes in. That means enters the salvific kingdom of God, the Israel of God, the king, we could say. Verse 26, and without further ado, all Israel will be saved. All the Gentiles, all Israel, that's all people. And we'll see what that means in a moment. That means they're all going to enter the salvific kingdom of God. And they will all constitute the Israel of God. So without further ado, verse 26, all Israel will be saved. You hear that, anti-Semites? Do you hear that, anti-Jewish people today? Do you hear that, so-called Christians who think that you replaced Israel as a Gentile body? You hear that? All Israel will be saved. As it is written, from Zion, we like Zion too, don't we, in Hebrews 12, 22 to 24, where the king is now, the great king, where the city of the great king is, Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem. So, that's also Psalm 48. Two, which I think is the Septuagint of 47.3 of the Psalms. So without further ado, all Israel will be saved. Verse 26, as it is written from Zion, the rescuer will come. That's Messiah. And he will remove ungodliness. That's what we call the Adamic ontology from Jacob. That's from Isaiah 59.20. Indeed, this is when I fulfill my covenant with them. That is Israel. That is when I take away their sins. Isaiah 59.21 reference. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 28, listen carefully to this of Romans eleven twenty-eight. In connection with God pronouncing a blessing upon the opponents of the gospel in Galatia. He says in verse 28, as for the gospel, they, who? The hardened part of Israel, that is, the broken off branches of the olive tree as he expresses it earlier, As for the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. 
But as for the election, they are beloved because of the patriarchs. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. As you, speaking here to Gentile Christians in Rome, who were a little bit arrogant about their position against their Jewish brethren, as you Gentile Christians once disobeyed, meaning you were once pagan unbelievers, you didn't just get born believing, you weren't born as a believer, you, as pagans, pagan unbelievers, once disobeyed. But now you've received mercy. That's saving mercy, of course, in Titus 3.5. So they, he's referring to the hardened part of Israel, whom you Gentile Christians see reflected in your Jewish Christian brethren with whom you have an axe to grind, and that's the context of Romans. So he says, so they also have now disobeyed, that is, the Jewish people from historical Israel who disbelieved the gospel and became unfaithful, so that, why? So that the same mercy given to you, they will also receive. That's a saving mercy for rejectors and disobedient and unbelieving Israelites. For God has locked down all human beings in disobedience in order to have mercy on them all. Now, if we've been locked down for a year plus in this country, just to learn that lesson, that's enough. It was worth it. God has locked down all human beings in disobedience in order to have mercy on them all. Now, how would you respond to that? How would you respond to that? I'll tell you how Paul responded to it. It's found right here in verses 11, 33 to 36. Oh, the depth of the wealth and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unfathomable are his judgments and how incomprehensible his ways of acting. For who has ever known the mind of the Lord? Who has ever become his advisor? Who has ever first given to him and has to be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all of the beings of the entire universe of proportionate being in all of its times. To him be the glory for all the ages. Amen. Paul, real, that's how you act when you realize that all will be saved. That's what you say. You don't say, no, well, there's some that aren't going to be, and there's hell for some. You, you say glory to God. That's what you say. The reason why evil ideologies that won't go too much further, but evil ideologies are growing up right now and affecting everyone from elementary school to our military institutions. The reason they're allowed to flower now is because of a flight from this insight, because of an oversight of this insight I'm talking to you about now. The recovery of this insight will have to mean the retreat of these evil and destructive ideologies. 
Now, this saving mercy did not mitigate Paul's deep disgust at the false gospel. Don't get that wrong. Nor did it even soften his pronunciations of anathema and even threats of judgment on these false gospel preachers. That the apostolic anathema that Paul pronounced on preachers of this other gospel, which is not good news at all, he said, that his pronouncement of anathema or curse was real but not everlasting, is evident by his teaching about mercy for all. So I'm prepared to concede the possibility that Paul was pronouncing an apostolic and even a messianic blessing of peace to those who were aligning to a justification that was rooted entirely in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and that he was pronouncing a blessing of mercy on those who had not yet done so, not yet aligned to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ and were actually enemies of the gospel. Now, in fact, this does not impoverish my previous insight as to who the true name or to whom the true name, the Israel of God, belongs. It does not, I'll repeat, it does not impoverish my previous insight as to whom the true name, the Israel of God, belongs. It actually enriches this insight by pronouncing peace on those who were already following the rule that pertains in the new creation and will be the rule of what Hebrews calls future world. And by pronouncing a blessing of mercy upon those who used the Israel of God as a title for themselves, even though it's a title only appropriate to Jesus, the Son of God, and those who are incorporated in him. Even though, I'll say it again, even though Israel of God is a title only appropriate to Jesus, the Son of God, and to those who are incorporated in him. This title, the Israel of God, is still a descriptor, an accurate one, that truly fits the firstborn from the dead, our Lord Jesus Christ. And again, I remind you, I'm doing this increment 129 during that period between noon and 3 o'clock on Good Friday. So we recorded this message much earlier than when it's going to be out for your consumption, which is around May 26th, Wednesday, May 26th. And so, even though this title is appropriate only for Jesus, the Son of God himself, and those who are incorporated in him, the Israel of God is still a descriptor that was adopted by people who assumed themselves to be that, where it really fits for the firstborn from the dead and the church of the firstborn, Hebrews 12.23. So I think this is very helpful for us in our study of Hebrews, especially given the fearfulness of the warnings that the PT gives to his readers and hearers in Hebrews 6.4-8. 
Hebrews 10, 26 to 31, Hebrews 12, 25 to 29, because like the anathema of Galatians, they cannot be taken as threats of eternal damnation, though they are real and though they may mean temporal judgment and the wrath of God being expressed in a temporary way, in a momentary way even to his people, who revert back to the Adamic ontology. Now, that's, that's to be taken seriously, but not eternally. So now I'm going to move to part three. That was my response, but I condensed it greatly. There was a lot more that went to this, believe me, in the past few years. But now we move to what I call a specific application of the Israel of God to Hebrews, that title to, of the Israel of God to Hebrews. Interestingly, a very respected exegete of Hebrews. Now, when I see somebody referred to maybe a hundred times as I did this man in my, all the commentaries I'm studying, there was at least 100 references, I, I'm estimating, to this guy. His name was Albert Van Hoy. And when I see hundreds of references to one guy, I figure he's pretty respected. So I acquired his most recent commentary on Hebrews from 2015. At least it was published then. This very respected exegete of Hebrews was referred to scores of times in all the commentaries I've read, namely, namely Albert Van Hoy, believes that though Paul did not write Hebrews, he nevertheless gave a personal endorsement of the anonymous writer and of that epistle itself or the homily itself and that that anonymous writer was evidently an associate of Paul. Van Hoy makes it clear he believes it was Barnabas. And there's, as we've, I think we've explored that before, there are very good arguments in that direction. But in the East, where the patristic theologians of the East constantly believed that Paul was the author, in the West they did not believe that he was the author, so there was a problem with the anonymous author. But there is something that was written in 1631 that Van Hoy mentions, and he writes about a part of Hebrews, which we're going to go to now, Hebrews 13, we'll start with verse 18, called the dispatch note. The dispatch note. There was a part of this epistle toward the end, or this really, it wasn't an epistle, it was a homily, but it was sent in a letter or sent as a dispatch. Now imagine this. Imagine if you had a respected mentor, a theological mentor. Imagine you were going to preach a sermon. And you went to your mentor and said, would you please review this sermon before I preach it? And in fact, would you send this to the church at, say, New Kensington? Would you send this after you approve of it? Now imagine if this man went to Paul, who was in prison, and gave him a copy of this homily and said, would you please review my sermon, my homily that I'm going to send to a church at such and such a place? And would you either endorse it or nix it? And imagine that Paul, 
in this case, or imagine that your mentor not only endorses it, but highly approves it and even puts an end note at the end of it before he sends it and says, I'm sending this because I approve of everything he's saying and this is belongs to something that's going to help you very much. This homily is inspired, is as inspired as my epistles are, Paul would say. Imagine that. That might have been exactly what happened. And so, in 1631, an exegete named Estheus published his results in 1631, and he came up with a hypothesis on the dispatch note, that this note, Hebrews 13.9 and then 22-25, all consisting of what is known as a dispatch note, was written by someone other than the author. Estheus, E-S-T-H-I-U-S, hypothesizes that it was written by Paul under the assumption that Hebrews was written during the last year of Paul's life, which back then it was traditionally seen to be A.D. 67. So this kind of fits right into where we thought it might have been written a few years before the destruction of Jerusalem or somewhere between 66 and 70 A.D. or 65 and 70 A.D., somewhere around there. Close to Paul's death, Paul was still in prison at the time. Now listen, I think the hypothesis holds water. He's, he published his results again in 1631, and he hypothesized that it was Paul writing it under the assumption that it was written in the last year or so of Paul's life. Estheus put forth the idea that Paul wrote this dispatch note and was by it endorsing and in fact sending or dispatching this homily, which was done by an associate of his, an associate of his in the Apostolate. Apparently, this associate was a pastoral teacher, but he was also an itinerant apostle or wandering apostle and missionary. So let's translate this dispatch note, which is in Hebrews 13, 19, and then in 22 to 25. So we're going to the very end of the epistle for this as we explore the relevance and pertinence of the Israel of God to Hebrews. Hebrews 13 After the author wrote in verse 18, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience waiting to conduct ourselves, or wanting rather, to conduct ourselves honorably in everything. After that, Estheus theorized that Paul interjected the following. Now, this is not just an empty theory because it goes along with the idea that Paul, many times with his own handwriting, signed his epistles, and sometimes as in Galatians, right where the Israel of God is found in 611 to 18, he wrote with large caps, all caps, as we could say, large uncles, an inch high each probably, the closing words to Galatians. So it's not unlike Paul to do this. And so he says, Estheus theorized that Paul wrote this or interjected this as a dispatch note Because this isn't a letter. Hebrews isn't a letter. It's a homily within a letter that was dispatched. So Hebrews 13, 19 says, And I especially urge you to do this, that I may be restored to you soon. Paul was in prison. He wanted them to pray that he would be restored so that he could visit them wherever they were after he was released. Paul didn't have to give his name here. For it was well known that he was the prisoner of the Lord. 
And in fact, that was one of his names, the prison, I, the prisoner of the Lord, Ephesians 3.1. So they knew it would have been Paul speaking here, for it was well known by all the churches that he was in prison. Then, following a benediction in Hebrews 13.20-21, Paul, and this is according to Estheus' hypothesis, continues the dispatch note. Now, I looked at the Greek translation to this and found that it, in fact, could very well fit this way as we translate Hebrews 13.22 to 25 like this. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to bear with this word of exhortation. For I've written to you briefly, that is, in this dispatch note, because Hebrews really isn't a brief word. It's not a brief exhortation. It's a pretty extensive one, as we've seen. And so I'm changing up a little bit on my take on this verse. Paul says, I've written to you briefly. That means I'm writing this little brief dispatch note at the end of this word of exhortation, which I endorse and heartily recommend to you. Knowing that our brother Timothy has been released. Now, Paul called Timothy his son in the Timothys, but he would not call Timothy his son if he was referring to brothers who are brothers to Timothy. He says, know that our brother Timothy has been released. If he comes to me soon enough, and remember, Paul told him to come to him and bring him parchments that he could study. If Timothy comes to me soon enough, I'll bring him with me when I see you. He expected to be released from prison and come back and see them, and he'd bring Timothy all together like Paul. Verse 24, salute all your leaders and all the saints. And then he says, those who are from Italy salute you, which indicates that Paul was with some believers from Italy. This to me, and I thank God we went through Romans first, because this is so reminiscent of the greetings and salutations that Paul passes along in Romans 16. It's so Pauline. It's so like Paul. No wonder they thought Paul wrote it in the East. He didn't, in my view, but he sure endorsed it. And therefore, every word of Hebrews was endorsed by Paul, so you can kind of forgive people who think that Paul wrote it. Verse 25, this really sounds like Paul. Grace be with you all. Amen. Now, this hypothesis, Estheus's, I'd never heard of it until yesterday, really. Though not absolutely provable, this hypothesis is reasonable. So if we're going to follow the mandate, the excellent mandate for transcendent living, be reasonable, it's reasonable. And it's more than interesting if it's true because it links Hebrews to Paul, whom the patristic theologians in the East insisted was the author. It links Hebrews with Paul without ascribing its authorship to him, which was nearly entirely disproved by other theologians, though Pauline influence can't be denied by anybody who, read he who reads Hebrews. On top of that, it links Hebrews specifically to Galatians, and there's a great hookup there, and a, an important one, where Paul closed out that fiery, fiery fusillade of a letter with his own handwritten paragraph, 
which happens to begin at 6.11 of Galatians and end with 6.18 and climax with his what? His blessing of peace upon those who walk according to the rule of the new creation, which is instauration, and mercy upon those who wrongly called themselves the Israel of God or ironically called themselves the Israel of God because of mercy upon all. So that handwritten paragraph in Galatians, which we are linking with his handwritten paragraph at the end of Hebrews, that passage in Galatians is the only place in the scripture where the Israel of God is found, that identifier. So the implication is that those who follow this rule, or the way of Jesus Christ, as we call it, the way of Jesus Christ and him crucified, that they, in fact, that the Israel of God was, in fact, those who follow that rule. And they were the authentic eschatological Israel and, therefore, the real Israel of God. Therefore, the insight of the Israel of God that we came up with years ago still stands while our translation of Galatians 6.16 might vary slightly to be linked up with mercy toward all people, for it pronounces mercy on the opponents of the gospel whom Paul anathematizes in the beginning of his letter to the Galatians. That's a lot to digest, I know. That's why I've also put it in note form and in, the, in print, and even that was very difficult to do, so... I'm praying that God the Holy Spirit will make this all clear to you. The implication, again, is those who follow the rule or the way of Jesus Christ and him crucified were the authentic eschatological Israel and therefore the real Israel of God upon whom Paul pronounced the messianic apostolic blessing of peace. It's a messianic blessing, too, because Jesus, upon his resurrection, said, Peace be to you in John 20, 26. But to that benediction, Paul added the blessing of mercy even upon his opponents in Galatians 6.16. So the irony, the irony in Hebrews is that the very Christians who are being charged with being separated from Israel by those who perhaps styled themselves to be the Israel of God, that these same Christians being charged with being separated from Israel and under the punitive threat of God's judgment were in reality the Israel of God, the eschatological, ecclesiological prolepsis, who were the advanced form of Israel, as it were, formed up in Messiah, who is the single inclusive representative of eschatological Israel, as he is also the single inclusive representative of a universal new humanity. So these people who are charging these Christians, the people who are charging these Christians with being outside of Israel, were actually outside of the Israel of God in that sense, and they were accusing the Israel of God of being outside of Israel. Now, the relevance of the Israel of God to Hebrews is evident in this homily, which was sent in a letter endorsed and dispatched, let's say, 
evidently by Paul. Let's say that. Who definitely dictated and wrote Galatians. We surely know he wrote Galatians. We don't know, and it's really not absolutely provable that he wrote the dispatch note in Hebrews, but it's quite possible. In fact, I think there's a degree of probability that he did that, did so. Now, Hebrews is linked to Galatians first because the purpose of the PT, who is definitely a companion of Paul in the apostolate because of just so many influences of Paul in that epistle. He was after a similar purpose in Hebrews as the apostle Paul was in Galatians, which was to rescue a group from being attracted to the once glorious but now divinely defunded system, which would have ultimately involved a fateful act of apostasy from Christ. A fateful act of apostasy from Christ was what was being averted in Galatians and in Hebrews, a fateful act of apostasy from Christ which would have invited the momentary wrath of God and a fiery judgment from God not too unlike the conflagration that took out the old Jerusalem and leveled the old temple. Now, we're moving to a close. And this has been, I don't think I've ever been more exercised than I have been in increment 128 and 129 together. So, as we close, in the second place, Hebrews being all about the theme of completion, was concerned with the complete break of the community and the confessors of Jesus from the temple in Jerusalem, which was under an anathema by Jesus. For only then could they cohere as a community who could indeed and in truth be called the Israel of God. In other words, Hebrews was toward the end of a coherent community called the Christian community, which would have been coherent and distinguished from the community in Jerusalem and the old abrogated system of sacrifices. That's how important this is historically speaking. So again... Hebrews, being all about the theme of completion, was concerned with the complete break of the confessors of Jesus from the temple in Jerusalem because only then would they cohere as a community of solidarity who could indeed and in truth be called the Israel of God, be indeed and in truth called the Israel of God. Also known in Hebrews as the church or the community of the firstborn the true Christological, soteriological, eschatological version of Israel itself, which must emerge like a butterfly from the cocoon of historical Israel. Once again, the Lord proves true to his faithful love. And I speak of that personally as what he's done in the fruitful insight of the Israel of God, which we are revisiting in these last two increments. What I consider to be a challenge or perhaps a fatal threat to an insight that I received years ago with regard to the Israel of God. 
only became an occasion of the further development of that insight, proving once again that it is a fruitful insight, an insight that bears fruit. With this and the linked insights of USSJC, UICC, along with the AD 70 trajectory, we have been equipped with invaluable interpretive tools so that we can exegete Hebrews and the rest of the New Testament for that matter with the result that those who listen and read may rejoice and go out into life having the joy of the Lord as their strength. Nehemiah 8, 8 through 10. It is also strikingly evident that God had a purpose for us to come to Hebrews, not only via John and Revelation, but also through Better Call Paul. And after reading two, well, a thousand pages or so of Galatian commentaries and the doctrine of the mystery, too, Hebrews is now seen to fit squarely in the New Testament. Those who want this to be an epistle written by Paul may at least now revel in Paul's evident endorsement of this homily. And those who are afraid that Hebrews is somewhat out of touch with the rest of the New Testament and who are uncomfortable with its anonymous authorship ought to be heartened by its connectedness to the rest of the New Testament, as well as the Old Testament scriptures, which are rife throughout it. And they ought to be content, I say we ought to be content, to acknowledge that Hebrews is an integral part of the single master narrative that is the Bible and a great contribution to the scripture, which in its totality is the testimony of Jesus. Jesus, whom we see now with the eyes of our heart. We see him crowned with glory and with honor as the portrait of our destiny painted by the spirit of grace and endorsed by his eternal majesty, Jesus' father and our father in heaven. Father, we thank you that you have portrayed your son, that you've endorsed the portrayal of him in the scriptures, that you've endorsed the portrayal of him in Hebrews and that you've granted us the grace to see with the eyes of our imagination, the eyes of our heart, the eyes of our mind, the eyes of our understanding, to see him, and to see in him our destiny embodied, and not only ours, but the destiny of all humankind, and the destiny of history, and the destiny of all creation. Use these messages, Father, to be the helper of the joy of everyone who listens everyone who pays attention, and especially to everyone who pays careful 
attention to it. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.